Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Chaim Potok, the author of The Chosen, The Gift of Asher Lev, Davida's Harp, and many other novels, chronicled the life of a Russian Jewish family in his nonfiction work entitled The Gates of November. This true story of the Slapek family, Solomon Slapek, his son Volodya, and daughter-in-law Masha spans about a hundred years. Published in 1996, the story begins with Solomon Slapek's childhood at the beginning of the 20th century, his escape to America, and his return to Russia. It eventually describes Volodya and Masha's life after they apply for an exit visa to leave Russia in 1968 in order to emigrate to Israel. Chaim Potok died on July 23, 2002. When I spoke with him from his home near Philadelphia in January of 1997, we began our conversation with him describing what drew him to trace the Slapek family chronicles. That's a lengthy story with a number of uh, bumps uh, and ups and downs. I began to hear about the Slapeks in the 1970s, um, and uh, my wife and I decided to go to the Soviet Union in 1984, and we were there in 1985, and we met them in Moscow. And they had come back recently from five years of exile in a tiny village uh, near the border of Mongolia. And uh, the chemistry was perfect uh, among the four of us. We just hit it off right. The characterization in the uh, prologue to your book of how you met with them is just so precious. I wonder if you could just tell us briefly about that. Well, we met them uh, in an apartment in Moscow. Um, He didn't even know who we were because when my wife called him, she didn't identify us. It's not the sort of thing you did on the telephone. And uh, in the course of uh, the evening, he sort of turned to me and asked me if I knew the writer uh, Chaim Poltak, because he knew that Chaim Poltak lived somewhere in the Philadelphia area, and he knew that we were from the Philadelphia area. So I said, yes, I'm the writer, and he was rather flustered. Um, He thought that somehow I hadn't understood his question. Uh, So he asked me again, did I know the writer Chaim Poltak? And I said, yes, I'm the writer Chaim Poltak. And I pulled out one of those business cards that I had been urged to have made up and carry along with me to the Soviet Union. And when he saw my name on the business card, uh, I was suddenly a a person to him. And uh, it was rather uh, a warm and uh, extraordinary meeting of four strangers who were suddenly very close to one another. When we left them that evening, we were sure we would never see them again, and they were sure they'd never get out of the Soviet Union. And a couple of years or so later, they were out. And um, my agent wondered one evening over dinner in New York if I knew anybody who might be interested in writing their story. And I said, well, what is their story? And he said there was a tape that uh, Volodya Slapek had made about his story. And it had been translated by his son, and I listened to it. And there was an interesting story there, and I thought, well, spend uh, a year or so writing his story. There were still many, many individuals trying to get out of the Soviet Union who couldn't. And what I would write would be 
uh, perhaps of help uh, in the growing body of literature of protest uh, that was uh, making an attempt to get these people out. I thought, well, give it a year and so on. I get back to my own work. As I started to write, the Soviet Union opened its doors to these individuals, and suddenly there was no issue. It was gone, and I thought, well, so is the book. The book is gone. Then I thought maybe I would write a more general book about the Soviet Union and dissident movements in the Soviet Union, what that was all about. And suddenly there was no Soviet Union. So that book was gone. And then I thought what I would do is write a history of uh, the Jews of Russia and of the Soviet Union and of the whole Bolshevik movement and the participation of Jews and non-Jews in it and try to track the growth of uh, the dissident movement, and try to understand the causes for the incredible, sudden implosion of one of the mightiest empires the world has ever seen, and the extent to which these dissidents played a role in that implosion. Could I track one family, a microcosm, and say that the microcosm is somehow representative of things that were going on in a macrocosm among tens and tens of thousands of families at the same time. Indeed. That was indeed the case. Then one might understand more easily the uh, disintegration of the Soviet Union. In doing that, um, did you find elements of yourself in the characters that you wrote about, Volodya and Solomon or some of the other people? Not really, other than the notion of uh, one generation uh, having significant quarrels with another. I have to say that uh, this was a very uh, different world from the world in which I grew up. Preparing what? this book, I wonder how it, it was different for you than it was in the preparation of The Chosen or The Promise or Davida's Harp. Well, this book takes the father-son relationship from an altogether different perspective. It's an entirely secular world. And here you have the same father-son tension arising. Uh, the difference, of course, was that this is non-fiction. In fiction, when you come to the end of your facts, you can then use your imagination to fill it in, and that's where things really get exciting, when you can use the imagination uh, at the end of the trail of facts. But here, if I come to the end of a trail of facts, I say so, and I don't augment it in any way. This is a work of non-fiction. Well, in The Chosen, for instance, how much of that is a revelation of your childhood? Well, the world that I write about is very much my world, but that's fairly typical of modern literature. The writer writing about a certain world very often will use uh, elements of her or his own experience, which he or she then transforms for the sake of fiction. But the starting point is uh, a world that is very familiar to the writer. Where is that world in your life in Davida's Harp? That's my wife's world. That was my wife's experience, especially the losing of the uh, prize at the end. That was her uh, experience. Do you still have the door harp? Oh, yes, indeed. I have two of them, as a matter of fact. In the introduction to The Gates of November, you pose two questions that the book seeks to answer. First, what conditions will drive people living in comfort at the very summit of a political system to suddenly turn against that system 
and bring ruin down on their lives. And second, can a single family serve as a microcosm that might shed light on what ultimately happened to all the peoples of the Soviet Union? Well, everybody has uh, a map, a model of the world in that space between our ears. It's formed generally uh, in the early years and during the teens. And everything that happens to us is filtered through that model, that construct, that map, that uh, paradigm. In the pre-modern world, that model remained uh, quite firm, quite static, all through one's life. In the modern world, the tendency is for that model to undergo significant transformation, uh, beginning in the teens, late teens. Um, And often, uh, once again, in later life, in the 40s and so on. When you live in a hermetically sealed system, such as uh, the Soviet Union was, the, that map, that model between the ears is formed for you by the culture in which you live. And uh, it's very difficult for it to be altered. The question I set for myself was, uh, here were individuals at the very top of their culture, of their society. And in spite of the fact that they were the elite of that society, that map between the years changed. How did it change? What were the forces of change? And the change consists of two elements. One, breaking the map. And two, a new map that takes its place. What broke the map? And how did the new map get itself constructed? That was the essential question. Well, I wonder if, in fact, uh, some of the elements of the map uh, were actually created by Solomon in Volodya's eyes. Because as I see it, Solomon returned to Russia because he wanted to live out his ideals. Volodya applied for an exit visa because he wanted to live out his ideals. Well, that's later, the application for the exit visa. The application for the exit visa comes in the wake of the breaking of the old map and the construction of the new map, that's what I set myself uh, as a goal uh, to understand. Uh, Clearly, Volodya's map was constructed for him by his father and by the Soviet state. What changed it? What what changed it? Well, that's what the book explores. Uh, The only way that you can change, I think, a map constructed in a hermetically sealed civilization is if uh, it becomes internally inconsistent. If the system itself seems to be self-contradictory, and those self-contradictory moments are charted uh, very carefully in this book, one being the doctor's plot, the other being Khrushchev's speech in 1956 against Stalin and the slow building of internal inconsistencies that rendered the map uh, a broken model inside Volodya's head. Then came the problem of what replaces the model. And in fascinating fashion, the conduit for that replacing was a little uh, box called the radio, which uh, he and his uh, few uh, scientists, 
friends uh, altered to make a shortwave radio, a uh, sort of radio you could buy anywhere in the Soviet Union, but it received only uh, the local broadcast. But they changed its uh, innards, as it were, its coils and its uh, capacitors, so that it could now receive broadcasts from a Voice of America and Radio Liberty, uh, Russian language broadcasts, and the BBC, and the uh, Armed Forces Network, and the Voice of Israel. And slowly, over a period of many, many years, alternate map began to form inside the heads of Volodya and Masha Slapak, consisting of the information that they were getting uh, over this radio. Was this a conscious search on their part, or were they uh, feeling out for some security and, uh, and for some intellectual stimulation or something else? Once that original map began to crack, they made a conscious effort to make a connection to the outside world to see if somehow the outside world might not offer them a different picture of life. They began to feel that, that what they were getting inside their own world was not the truth, uh, certainly not a truth that they could be comfortable with. And the crack and the subsequent rupture began with the doctor's plot and Khrushchev's speech about Stalin? That is correct. The, the first major uh, crack in their lives started with uh, the doctor's plot, the tirade against Jews in the Soviet press, and the issue with regard to the doctor's plot was that uh, many of the Jewish doctors who were accused uh, and arrested for attempting to poison the um, upper echelon of Soviet uh, uh, leadership, many of those doctors were colleagues of Masha Slapak, Volodya's wife. She herself was a physician who had studied with some of those doctors. They were her colleagues. And she knew they were innocent. She knew this thing was simply inconceivable. It's one thing when something is happening uh, and you're distanced from it. It's another thing entirely when it's happening. You're right in the middle of it, and you know the people involved. You know how absurd the thing is. But she herself was not accused. She was not accused, but she was very close to those who were. And uh, when... She told Volodya about this, and the two of them confronted the uh, old man, Volodya's father, about this. Um, he told them it's worth uh, jailing uh, a thousand uh, people, and uh, even if 999 of them were innocent, if they find the one who's guilty, it's still worth jailing the thousand. And at that point, he and Volodya had a, an enormous row. And that was the first of many quarrels that they had. And it was that doctor's plot, which is what that issue has come to be called, uh, the, the arrest of the doctors that began to take place uh, at the end of 1952 and continued early into 1953, um, and then came to an end when Stalin died in March 1953. And very soon afterwards, in April, the doctors that had been arrested were all freed, and the announcement came that the arrest uh, was uh, illegal. Why were the Russians and the KGB so hostile to the Jewish people and subsequently to the refuseniks and the dissidents? Well, much of this goes back to the very beginnings of uh, Russian history. Um, uh, sometimes
sometime around the year 900 or so, uh, the tribes that had come down from the north, which are generally called the Rus tribes, R-U-S, uh, or a tribe called the Rus, settled originally around Kiev, uh, that tribe adopted uh, Greek Christianity, which became Russian Christianity, Byzantine Christianity. And adopting it, they also adopted the attitude of uh, Byzantine Christianity or Greek Christianity toward the Jews, which was, uh, to say the very least, uh, hostile. The Jews were regarded as uh, the eternal other, uh, a demonic people whose essential purpose it was to corrupt and destroy Christendom. That pure, unalloyed anti-Semitism became part of the very fabric of Russian culture. Now, it, it was to some extent part of the fabric of Western culture as well, except the West had two ameliorating experiences that thinned out that attitude toward the Jew. It attenuated it. One was the Renaissance, and the other was the Reformation, which left a spectrum of attitudes toward the Jew in Western culture. But Russia never experienced the Renaissance, and Russia never experienced uh, the Reformation. So when the Kievan Rus disintegrated as a state, uh, sometime in the about 1200, 1300, under the onslaught of the Mongols, and then the next state became the Russian or Muscovite state, uh, they simply inherited that culture. And it thrived all the way through. There were no Jews in Russia until about 1795, 1796, when Russia conquered parts of Poland and inherited uh, suddenly half a million or more Jews, which about a century or so later ended up being close to uh, five million. And they never knew what to do with their Jews. The attitude toward the Jews was they were simply a horrific people, and we wish we, they would just go away. Now, with the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, this softened considerably and remained softened for about 10, 15 years. And then with Stalin, especially toward the end of Stalin's life, that old Russian attitude toward the Jew began to surface. And anti-Semitism became uh, very much a part of uh, the Soviet agenda. And came boiling to the surface with a doctor's plot, that old medieval notion of the Jew as poisoner. And Masha found herself right in the middle of this because she herself was a doctor. Do you feel that uh, the shaping or the, uh, of Solomon's life and the softening, as you uh, describe it, uh, under Lenin's time, had an effect on Solomon's um, remaining the old Bolshevik to the end and standing by the government, turning his back on his son when he said, I want an exit visa? Oh, yes. Solomon was one of a fairly small handful of Jews, about 2,000 indeed, who were active uh, Bolsheviks in a party of about 100,000 or more, um, who really felt that the Bolshevik dream was to improve mankind. And um, when they became part of the revolution, they became uh, committed dreamers par excellence, feeling that uh, the Bolshevik dream was the only way, once and for all, to change the world. You uprooted the old aristocracy, you uprooted the old corrupt uh, bourgeoisie, and in its place you put uh, a, 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 
common, ordinary people. And they hoped that this new world would once and for all do away with anti-Semitism. And indeed, in the early years of the Bolshevik Revolution, Lenin uh, could not be called uh, uh, an anti-Semite in any, in any ordinary sense of the term. He simply felt that the Bolshevik was a Bolshevik with no ties to any particular group. And the early uh, Jewish Bolsheviks were totally committed to the dream of the revolution. It was later that that dream uh, became corrupted, especially uh, during the time of Stalin. Old-style uh, anti-Semitism uh, simply came back to the surface of uh, the Russian world. Let me take a moment and say that I'm talking with Chaim Potok from his home in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, about his book entitled The Gates of November, The Chronicles of the Slepak Family. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Chaim, in the luck, if luck is the right word, is that what you feel saved Solomon's life so many times from uh, not being executed uh, shortly after he returned to Russia and threw on out his life uh, in his many different involvements? Or was there a closer connection that he had that sustained itself with the Russian government? Well, that's one of the ongoing mysteries throughout the book that I uh, try to explore. And indeed, I'm still trying to find out uh, how he escaped all those purges. Everybody around him was picked up. He was certainly a visible entity. He was uh, deputy head of uh, the foreign desk of TASS. He was preparing briefing books for Stalin and the members of the Politburo. And all around him, people were being picked up and uh, shot. Uh, a number of individuals inside TASS preferred to shoot themselves uh, rather than uh, be arrested. And he somehow eluded uh, arrest. And I'm not sure how that happened, and neither is anyone in the family a certain as to how that happened. There are all kinds of conjectures. He may have slipped through the bureaucratic cracks, but for that to have happened over and over again is, to say the least, unlikely. He may have uh, been lucky, as you put it, but nobody was really that lucky. He may have uh, had something on somebody. We're not sure, and that's what I say in the end. We're not sure. I'm still trying to get into his uh, KGB files. Uh, so far, they're still closed. I'd like to ask you, uh, as we come to the close of our program, to read the section of your book where the Slepak's uh, life was transformed. Well, now, this part takes place after years of um, listening to The Voice of America, after years of listening to Voice of Israel, BBC, Radio Liberty, Armed Forces Network, after the doctor's plot, after Khrushchev's speech in 1956, after the map has changed, and there's a moment where they have to make a decision about what to do with their lives. Did they realize that moment was going to be there that day? Maybe you should answer that by reading the, the passage. The moment took place in... 1968, December 25th, at a Moscow apartment uh, of friends of theirs. They had a small circle of friends that they were a part of, Volodya and Masha. That circle met, and 
they met with a number of people who were leaving for Israel soon, especially one individual who was going the next day. And that individual had told them that if they were to give him their family data, he would take that with him to Israel, and the process would begin for getting them exit visas. And they knew that once they gave that data and the Israelis responded, that the KGB would monitor their mail and find out, and their lives would never be the same again. Volodya Slepak was in a top position as a scientist. He was one of those responsible for the air defense system of the Soviet Union. And Masha Slepak was a leading physician in one of the top hospitals in Moscow. And their lives would never be the same again. Volodya Slepak had security clearance just below those members of the Politburo, just below uh, Stalin. And he lost all of that security. Of That's... course he did. The passage is as follows. Now, in the Drapkin's apartment, the circle of friends talked with six people from Riga, among them a man named Mark Bloom in his late 20s, who was not returning to Riga because he was unmarried and had no family there. Instead, he was to leave for Israel shortly via Vienna. Did anyone in the group wish to give him the personal data needed by the Israelis in order for them to send the official invitations that were necessary for Soviet visa applications? Names, addresses, children, dates of birth, names of parents, relatives in Israel. He would give the information to the Israelis who would then search for the relatives. In cases of a total absence of relatives, the Israeli authorities would look into the possibility of other arrangements. Members of the group began to write down the information. Volodya and Masha sat looking at each other. It was late evening. The curtains were drawn against the winter gloom outside. Masha got to her feet and took Volodya's hand, and they moved to a dark corner near a window and a desk and stood with their backs to the others. Masha said quietly, this is a special opportunity. Who knows when it might happen again? Are you ready to do it? Volodya, lost in fearful hesitation, did not respond. Fighting back her apprehension about the consequences of their act upon their children, Masha said, we must use this opportunity. And Volodya, after a brief silence, said, let's do it and felt they had suddenly fallen into deep and icy waters. Chaim Potok, I want to thank you very much for joining us at Radio Curious. Before we close, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? The English Patient, significant uh, novel. Chaim Potok, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. You're very welcome. Chaim Potok is the author of The Gates of November. The book that he recommends is The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje. 
Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.